نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respected listeners we gather for the final part inshallah of the study and commentary of hadith al-hiraq the famous hadith of Heraclius from Sahih al-Bukhari over the past few weeks having read most of the hadith related by Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi in his Sahih hadith number 7 from Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma who relates from Abu Sufyan Abu Sufyan narrates his own story that in the after the truce of Hudaybiyah in the 6th year of Hijrah shortly thereafter most likely at the beginning of the 7th year of Hijrah taking advantage of this truce and the opportunity to travel past Medina from Mecca northwards to Sham for trade he took a caravan a trade caravan consisting of approximately 30 traders and it was a very significant journey whilst they were trading in the port city of Gaza in Sham Heraclius the Byzantine Roman emperor who had come to Jerusalem to pay homage and to celebrate his victory or many victories over the Sasanian Persians Heraclius summoned Abu Sufyan and the reason for summoning him is that Heraclius had learned about the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam but the information that he had was very brief was very sketch was very sketchy so he wanted an arab and also someone who knew the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so abu sufyan was hauled from gaza along with his companions to jerusalem and there they were summoned to the royal palace and surrounded by his courtiers his leading dignitaries and religious figures of the empire Heraclius had Abu Sufyan and his companions seated before him 
And then he proceeded to interrogate him, asking him ten questions. All of these questions were very targeted, they were very precise, and they were based on knowledge and experience, because Heraclius wasn't just uh, a great military campaigner and a political leader and monarch. He was also a devout Christian with some knowledge of the Christian scriptures and Christian history. So his questions were based on this knowledge and they all revolved around the topic of the messengers and their relationship with their peoples. And the purpose of these questions and this whole interrogation was to determine the veracity of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as a prophet. So having obtained answers to all ten questions, Heraclius then proceeded to repeat each question to the audience and actually analyse the answer. So he repeated the question, repeated the answer that he had been given, and then he proceeded to analyse that answer. Ultimately he said, if all that you say is true, then he will soon come to possess the land beneath my feet. And he tacitly admitted that he was a prophet of Allah and said, I knew he was going to emerge, but I didn't think he would be one of you, meaning the Arabs. Then he summoned the letter sent by the Prophet to Heraclius, which he had already received before and which he had read put away and following which he carried out some investigations including this interrogation then he had the letter read out publicly again and Abu Sufyan as far as he was concerned this was the first time he had knowledge of the letter and so Abu Sufyan repeated the contents of the letter in the hadith as well so this is where we ended last week we reached the end of the letter so to continue from there, وَبِلِسْنَادِ الْمُتَّصِلِ مِنِّي إِلَى الْإِمَانِ الْبُخَارِي رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ قَالَ And I relate to you with a continuous and uninterrupted chain from me to Imam Bukhari رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ who with this chain narrates from Abdullah ibn Abbas from Abu Sufyan who says قَالَ أَبُو سُفْيَانَ Abu Sufyan said فَلَمَّا قَالَ مَا قَالَ Then when Heraclius said whatever he said وَفَرَغَ مِنْ قِرَاءَةِ الْكِتَابِ And he completed the reading of the letter. كَثُرَ عِنْدَهُ السَّخَبِ Shouting increased around him. وَارْتَفَعَتِ الْأَسْوَابِ and the voices were raised, and we were removed. So I said to my companions, when we were removed, Abu Sufyan says that once Heraclius had finished reading the letter, Meaning there was a great din and clamor. I just did a literal translation. But the meaning is, there was a great din and clamor. And people began shouting, raising their voices, arguing amongst themselves, shouting over each other. 
And in that din and clamour, Heraclius and his courtiers removed Abu Sufyan and his party from the great hall. So they were removed, so they did not know what took place thereafter. The reason for the din and clamour was simply this, that Heraclius was inclined to believing in Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And I'll say more about this later at the end of the hadith. And he wanted his people to support him. And he was testing the waters because he wanted the best of both. He was slightly indecisive as far as this issue was concerned. He was insecure. And he wanted the approval of his people, their loyalty. He wanted his kingdom, an empire. But at the same time, he also wanted to save his soul. So he wanted the best of the life of this world and the life of the hereafter. And he was convinced within that this is the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But practically, whether he should believe or not, he was undecided. And he wanted to see which way his people would go. So rather than being the leader on this occasion, he wanted to be led by his people. And so all of these were measures. He didn't even come out openly and say, if you believe, I will believe. Rather, these were all preliminary measures which he adopted to try and somehow goad and coax his people into embracing Islam so that he could do it too. And the people soon realized what he was trying to say. So when, he end, when the reading of the letter ended, then initially there was silence and suddenly there was a great din and clamor. And in that confusion, Abu Sufyan and his party were removed from the great hall. So Abu Sufyan then says, فَقُلْتَ لِأَسْحَابِ حِينَ أُخْرِجْنَا So I said to my companions once we were removed from the hall, and in one narration, وَخَلَوْتُ بِهِمْ And I was secluded in privacy outside the hall with my companions. I said to them, remember he wasn't a Muslim then, لَقَدْ أَمِرَ أَمْرُ بْنِ أَبِي كَبْشَةً لَقَدْ أَمِرَ أَمْرُ بْنِ أَبِي كَبْشَةً Meaning, for those of you who are studying the Hadith uh, and who are familiar with Arabic, لَقَدْ أَمِرَ أَمْرُ أَيْ لَقَدْ عَظُمَ أَمْرُ ابن أبي كبشة. The affair of the son of Abu Kabsha has become great indeed. What, what did Abu... Indeed, verily, the king of the Romans fears him. So Abu Sufyan went out, and when he was secluded in privacy with his people, his group, he said to them, لَقَدْ أَمِرَ أَمْرُ بْنِ أَبِي إِنَّهُ يَخَافُهُ مَلِكُ بَنِ That indeed, the affair of the son of Abu Kabsha has risen and become great. For even the king of the Romans fears him. 
First of all, the phrase Ibn Abi Kabsha, what does he mean by that? The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, here he's referring to the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Why does he call him the son of Abu Kabsha? And who was Abu Kabsha? The Prophet it's mentioned in the reports of the genealogies that Abu Kabsha was the maternal grandfather of the maternal grandfather of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib ibn Hashim ibn Abdul Manaf ibn Qusay ibn Kilab. Kilab had sons, one of them was called Qusay and the other one was called Zuhra. A few generations back. Qusay was the one who snatched Mecca from the Khuza'ah, from the Khuza'ah tribe and became the ruler of Mecca. And his brother Zuhra was also from the Quraysh. His ancestors came to be known as Abunu Zuhra. The Prophet Wasallam's mother, Amina, was the daughter of Wahab. And she was from Banu Zuhra. So ultimately, the Prophet Wasallam's lineage and his, uh, his father's lineage, Abdullah, and his mother's lineage, Amina, joined in Gilab. So the Prophet ﷺ's father, Abdullah, was from the children of Gilab's son, Qusay. And the Prophet ﷺ's mother, Amina, was from the children of Gilab's son, Zuhra. And this was further back. So Muhammad ibn Abdullah, ibn, uh, Muhammad the son of Abdullah, the son of Abdul Muttalib, the son of Hashim, the son of Abdul Manaf, the son of Qusay. So about five, six generations back. So the Prophet ﷺ was from the Quraysh, from both his father's paternal side and from his mother's paternal side. However, from his mother's maternal side, the Prophet ﷺ's mother was Amina, her father was Wahb. So, in Asian languages, we refer to the maternal grandfather as Nana. So the Prophet ﷺ Nana was Wahb. And her, Wahb's mother, her father's name was Kabsha, Abu Kabsha. That was, one of, that was his kunya. So the Prophet wasallam's nana's nana, the Prophet wasallam's maternal grandfather's maternal grandfather, he wasn't from the Quraysh, he was from the tribe of Khuzar. And the Prophet wasallam's mother was named Amina, her father was called Wahab, Wahab's mother was called Qayla. And Qayla's father was one of his many names was Abu Kabsha. So it was just a normal name, Abu Kabsha. He was from the tribe of Khuzar. 
Now what Abu Kabsha had done is that in his time, Abu Kabsha went against the Quraysh and the rest of the Arabs in that region. And he opposed their religious ways. But he wasn't a monotheist. So instead of worshipping various other idols, he introduced the worship. And he was the first person in Arabia to introduce the worship of the Sirius star. The Sirius star is the brightest star in the sky. And that's referred to in Surah Al-Najm. وَهُوَ رَبُّ الشِّعِرَى is the Sirius star. It's the brightest star in the sky. So, Abu Kabsha from the Khuza'ah tribe, who was the Prophet Wasallam's nana's nana, maternal grandfather's maternal grandfather, he opposed the Quraysh and the rest of the Arabs in their worship of various idols. And he was the first person to introduce the worship of the Sirius star, of the Shi'ra star. So because of that, the Quraysh and the others, they considered him a heretic. Because he opposed their religion in other ways. So they regarded him as a heathen and heretic. And after that, what happened is... Anyone else in the family of Abu Kabsha Who opposed the Quraysh or that they wanted to nickname or label a heathen or a heretic. They just called him the son of Abu Kabsha. So it became a byword. The word, the son of Abu Gabsha, became a byword for being a heretic and a heathen. And that happens. Sometimes you have a proper name, which then becomes a byword. The word hooligan. So, from the word hooligan, you even have the verb hooliganism. But the word hooligan is actually the name of a family. Now, some people say that it's a fictional family. And others say it was an actual family, whatever the case. Hooligan, whether it was a fictional family or a real family, Hooligan was a surname of a family. But they were notorious for their violent behavior and their rowdiness, so you then have the word, people began calling anyone else a Hooligan, though they didn't even belong to such a family. And it became a byword for troubles, troublesome, rowdy behavior. So you even have a verb, hooliganism. Same with vandal. Vandal, vandalism. Vandals were an actual tribe from Europe. So this was a proper tribe, the vandals. But then because of their extreme violence and their warring nature, this, the word, the proper name vandal became a byword for troublesome, violent behavior. And then you have the name, you even have the noun, well, the verbal noun, vandalism. So similarly, the son of Abu Kabsha simply was a byword to refer to someone as a heretic or heathen. And he was also from the ancestors of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So Abu Sufyan, he wasn't a Muslim. He and the rest of the Quraysh, they would refer to the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims as heathens. So they wouldn't say Muslim or Aslam, that he has become a Muslim. They would normally say Sabah. Or if they wanted to ask someone, have you become a Muslim? They wouldn't say Aslamt, Aamant. 
Have you believed? Have you embraced Islam? They'd rather derogatorily say, Asabot, have you become a heathen? Have you become a Sabi? So they would refer to all Muslims as Sabi'un, meaning heathens and heretics. And they, even the Prophet ﷺ, they would refer to as a heathen and heretic. Because as far as they were concerned, he rebelled, against, he rebelled against their people. And since one of his ancestors was Abu Kabsha, who had also rebelled against the Quraysh and the rest of the Arabs in religious worship, they, for them this was a double derogatory title. So they would refer to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam as the son of Abu Kabsha. And that's why Abu Sufyan here, again in a very derogatory manner, says, لَقَدْ أَمِرَ أَمْرُ بْنِ أَبِي كَبْشَ Indeed, the affair of the son of Abu Kabsha has risen and become great. So much so, إِنَّهُ يَخَافُهُ مَلِكُ بَنِ الْأَصْفَرِ That even the king of the Romans, Asfar means yellow, which can also mean blonde. Strictly speaking, blonde is Ashqa. But Asfar means yellow. So the Banul Asfar, the Roman, the Arabs would refer to the Byzantine Romans and even the Syrians as Banul Asfar. The yellowish ones, or the pale ones, simply the pale ones. So, إِنَّهُ يَخَافُهُ مَلِكُ بَنِ الْأَصْفَرِ That indeed the king of the pale ones fears him too. And he's referring to Heraclius. So having been driven out of the hall, Abu Sufyan said to his people, look at uh, the affair of the son of Abu Qabsha. Even Heraclius, the king and the emperor of the pale-faced people, even he is fearful of Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, who he derogatorily referred to as the son of Abu Qabsha. Then Abu Sufyan says, remember he was, an, he was an unbeliever at the time, فَمَا زِلْتُ مُوْقِنَا Then I remained convinced أَنَّهُ سَيَظْهَرْ that he will become prevalent and dominant, meaning the Prophet ﷺ حَتَّى أَدْخَلَ اللَّهُ عَلَيَّ الْإِسْلَامِ until Allah brought Islam upon me. Abu Sufyan, he, at that time, this was the seventh year of Hijrah, he hadn't yet embraced, of course. His daughter, Ramla, had embraced Islam many years before. In fact, she had emigrated to Habasha, Abyssinia, and she had a daughter called Habiba, and therefore, not many people know her as Ramla, the daughter of Abu Sufyan, people most commonly know her as Umm Habiba, radiyallahu anha, one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. She was the daughter of Abu Sufyan. Now, Abu Sufyan, he, although he was one of the bitterest opponents of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, in fact, even leading the Quraysh in the Battle of Uhud and in the Battle of the Trench, as we've learned earlier in this hadith, he, he was tired of battling with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He was a diplomat and he was a trader. And he soon, he was intelligent, he soon realized the futility of opposing the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And eventually he mellowed in his opposition and Gradually he became convinced, like here as well, he says, فَمَا زِلْتُ مُوْقِنًا أَنَّهُ سَيَظْهَرُ 
that I was then, I remained convinced that he, Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, would become dominant and prevalent. And that conviction remained. Until Allah brought Islam upon me. And in fact, in one narration, he says, whilst I was reluctant. So he himself says that I reluctantly embraced. And when did he embrace? Not too long thereafter. On the night before the conquest of Mecca. When Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was camped outside Mecca al-Mukarramah. The night before the conquest. Abu Sufyan was brought to his tent. And there he embraced. Later however, he did become a very sincere and firm believer. To the extent that not too long after the conquest of Mecca. Immediately thereafter, he actually participated in the Battle of Hunayn, and he also participated in the Siege of Ta'if. And in the Siege of Ta'if, he actually lost one eye. And then many years later, in the Battle of Yarmouk, the decisive battle in which the Muslims, under the leadership of Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, and the military command of Khalid ibn al-Walid, radiyallahu anhum ajma'een, when they, despite being outnumbered, and despite being in a foreign country, they managed to defeat the largest Byzantine army assembled. And they didn't just defeat them, the whole army was actually destroyed. And in that battle of Yermuk, which is one of the most decisive battles in the whole of human history. Abu Sufyan took part in that battle, and he actually lost the second eye in that battle. So later, he was a sincere believer, even though he says that initially, الإسلام, and in one narration, that Allah brought Islam upon me whilst I was reluctant. Which, which doesn't mean that he was a false believer, far from it. What it, it means, he still had that reservation, he was reluctant, but he ultimately he was convinced. And despite himself, he did embrace Islam. So he says that I was, then I remain convinced after this episode with Heraclius that the Prophet ﷺ would become prevalent and dominant. Here, Abu Sufyan's section of the hadith ends. But one of the narrators of this hadith below is... It, Muhammad ibn Muslim ibn Shihab al-Zuhri. So ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, he continues and says, وَكَانَ ابْنُ النَّاظُورِ سَاحِبُ إِلِيَاءُ وَهِرَقْلُ سُقُفًا عَلَى نَصَارَ الشَّنَامِ يُحَدِّثُ Now, ibn Shihab al-Zuhri ends the narration of the hadith from Abu Sufyan, and he continues the narration from someone else who hasn't been mentioned so far. And who is that person? Ibn al-Nadhur. So who is ibn al-Nadhur? Ibn al-Nadhur, the companion, or Ibn al-Nadhur, the one of Jerusalem, of Elia, and the companion of Heraclius. Ibn al-Nadhur was a bishop, a Byzantine Roman bishop. And he was actually the bishop of Jerusalem at one time. He later embraced Islam. 
And he himself related that he was a friend and a companion and one of the courtiers of Heraclius, the Roman emperor, and he held a very prominent political and religious position of being the bishop, the leading bishop of Jerusalem. So but later he embraced Islam. So Ibn Nadur says that that Heraclius, when he came, when he arrived at Jerusalem, he rose one morning, very ill-tempered. So some of his patriarchs or some of his patricians, courtiers, told him that we find your disposition very strange, very awkward today. Ibn al-Nadhur, Ibn al-Nadhur continues, وَكَانَ هِرَقْلُ حَزَّاءً يَنْظُرُ فِي النُّجُومِ And Heraclius was a soothsayer who would study the stars. فَقَالَ لَهُمْ حِينَ سَأَلُوهُ So he said to them when they asked him, إِنِّي رَأَيْتُ اللَّيْلَةِ حِينَ نَظَرْتُ فِي النُّجُومِ Verily this night I saw when I was studying the stars, Malik al-Khitani qad-dhahar. The king of the circumcised ones has risen and become dominant. فَمَنْ يَخْتَطِنُ مِنْ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ So who circumcises of these nations? قَالُوا They said to him, لَيْسَ يَخْتَطِنُ إِلَّا الْيَهُودِ That no one circumcises except the Jews. فَلَا يُهِمَّكَ شَأْنُهُمْ So let their, let, their, let their affair not concern you. وَاكْتُبْ إِلَى مَدَائِنِ مُلْكِكَ And write to the cities of your empire. فَيَقْتُلُوا مَنْ فِيهِمْ مِنَ الْيَهُودِ That they should slay those Jews who live amongst them. فَبَيْنَمَا هُمْ عَلَىٰ أَمْرِهِمْ So let me explain so far. As I said earlier, Abu Sufyan's narration of the hadith actually ends. And from these words, قال ابن الناظور ابن الشهاد الزهري who is one of the pivotal narrators of the hadith. He says that ابن الناظور he would relate. So this is a narration of ابن الناظور. Who was Ibn al-Nadhur? Ibn al-Nadhur was a bishop of Rome and a famous leader who then embraced Islam. And he had knowledge of all of these things. And he was also a friend of Heraclius. So he says one day when Heraclius arrived in Jerusalem and he held court there, he spent some time there and he held court there, he awoke one morning and he was very ill-tempered. So we said to him, the courtiers said to him, that your disposition is very awkward this morning. What's wrong? So then he relates that last night I saw, according to some narrations, he saw a dream. According to other narrations, he, it wasn't just a dream. As he says here, he was actually studying the stars. Or the, the meaning of the narration that he saw a dream is that he was studying the stars, and then in a dream, 
he saw something which corresponded to the uh, his study of the stars. And what did he see, or what did he vision? What was his vision? What was his understanding and reading of the stars? That the king of the circumcised people has risen and has become all powerful and dominant. And that's why he was very ill tempered, because this meant a threat to his kingdom, his throne. Now when did this thing when did this whole incident actually took place take place? This the chronology of the the chronology is a bit confusing and the positioning of the words in the hadith are all well slight, slightly confusing, so let me explain. Heraclius, most likely, whilst he was campaigning against the Sasanid Persians, he was unaware of the Prophet Once he had defeated and secured a decisive victory over the Persians, since he was a religious, he was a religious man, a devout Christian. He ascribed this, these, this series of victories to God. So in order to pay homage to God and to perform the pilgrimage and to celebrate his victories, he made a pilgrimage on foot to Jerusalem. So he then arrived at Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the religious capital, but it wasn't the political capital. So he arrived in Jerusalem, being the emperor, he had his royal court, royal palace there too. Whilst he was resident in Jerusalem for a while, a number of things happened. One, he was studying the stars, as he would regularly do, and he saw a dream, or he surmised and concluded from his astrology, that the king of the circumcised people has risen. So that's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened is that the Ghassanid king, an Arab, but a vassal of the Romans and an ally of Heraclius, he had dispatched a messenger Informing Heraclius about Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So it seems that this is the first time he had actually learnt about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam by name as an individual. So this was the second thing that happened. The third thing that happened whilst he was stationed in Jerusalem is that he received the letter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sent by Dihitul Kalbi radiyallahu anhu. Sent with Dihitul Kalbi radiyallahu anhu. So Dihitul Kalbi radiyallahu anhu came and delivered the letter to him. This was the third thing that happened. So because of these three things, first he was studying the stars, he, he, he dabbled in astrology, and as a result of his astrological studies, and possibly also because of a dream and a vision, he generally knew vaguely that a king of, an uncirc- of a circumcised people has risen. That was very vague. And this is what we are learning about here now. The second thing that happened 
was a bit more specific. The Ghassani king, who was his Allah, and who was an Arab, and who had learned about the Prophet wasallam, he dispatched a messenger with details of Rasulullah wasallam himself. So now, he was able to specify who this person was, and he learned more about the Prophet wasallam. but it still wasn't that much. Then he received the letter, and the letter is the one we studied last week. Now he really wanted to find out. This is why he then sent for Abu Sufyan. And he didn't know Abu Sufyan in person or by name. He just said, do we have any of these Arabs in our land who know about this person? Muhammad the son of Abdullah. So his forces told him that possibly. So he said, turn the whole empire inside out until you find me someone who is familiar with and who has knowledge of this person who claims to be a prophet. That's the next thing that happened. So Abu Sufyan was, a search party was sent out. Abu Sufyan was located and he and his <coughs> companions were brought. So what's happened in the narration of this hadith is we've learned about the fourth thing, which is messengers being dispatched and search parties being sent out to locate Arabs from South Arabia who knew the Prophet, or Central Arabia who knew the Prophet So the fourth thing, that's where the hadith begins with. And that's the narration of Abu Sufyan. Now it makes sense because Abdullah ibn Abbas he relates his hadith from Abu Sufyan. And Abu Sufyan his knowledge was only this much, his own experience. So he relates a story from the time that he was located in Gaza and hauled to the royal court of Heraclius. And then he relates his whole experience and his story ends. Then Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, one of the narrators of the hadith, having concluded the narration of Abu Sufyan, he then takes us back right to the beginning. Before point four to point three, two and one. And he does so from the narration of Ibn al-Nadhur. And who was Ibn al-Nadhur? Ibn al-Nadhur was someone who had first-hand knowledge and experience of this because he was actually a friend and a companion of Heraclius. And he was one of his courtiers. And not only that, he was also the bishop of Jerusalem. So taking us back right to the beginning... He says that when Heraclius arrived at Jerusalem, this is long before the story of Abu Sufyan, he woke up one day and he was very ill-tempered, very irksome. So we said to him that you are of a very awkward and strange disposition this morning, what's wrong? So Heraclius said to them that last night, whilst I was studying the stars, I saw that the king of the circumcised people has risen. Now this bothered him. That's all he knew, or that's all he thought, that's all he surmised. So he said, يَخْتَتِنُ مِنْ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ Who circumcises of these nations? 
So his courtiers, who didn't know any better, they said to him, only the Jews are a circumcised people. So if you are worried that the king of the Jews has risen a circumcised people and that they will overthrow your kingdom, then his courtiers told him that do not let their affair bother you or concern you too much because they are in a minority. If you are really concerned, the solution to this would be to send out forces to all your cities and or me- a message to all your cities in the empire and tell them to capture and kill uh, all the circumcised people, meaning the Jews. So that's what his royal courtiers told him. This is similar to what Pharaoh did. Then Ibn al-Nadhu continues... That, we've covered that much so far. So this was point number one. This was the first thing that ever happened. He was studying the stars and he came to the conclusion that the king of the circumcised people has risen. Again, it's a very vague thing. Now, before I continue, how is a scholar like Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, one of the famous narrators of Hadith, relating from Ibn al-Nadhul, who himself had embraced Islam, and how can we find in the Hadith of Bukhari a narration of this nature where astrology is mentioned and this seems to suggest that, well, it says Heraclius was studying the stars, he was dabbling in astrology and he came to the conclusion, or he surmised, that the king of the circumcised people has risen. Very vague knowledge, but some knowledge at least. How was he able to conclude this? Through astrology. And surely, all these paranormal and supernatural means of communication and learning are all false. Well, we learn about this from the Hadith. In many verses of the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions about the shayateen and the jinn who would try to snatch details of the conversation of the angels. إِلَّا مَنْ إِسْتَرَقُ السَّمْعَ إِلَّا مَنْ خَطْفَ الْخَطْفَةِ Except one who snatches the snatching. Except one who steals a hearing, some conversation, some snippets. So what what was what is all this referring to? The Prophet ﷺ explains this in some detail in a number of ahadith, including in Bukhari, that the jinn and the shayateen would attempt to listen in to the conversation of the angels and the affairs of the heavens. And they continue to do so. But, they are unable to gain much. So they catch snippets with great strained hearing. They are able to snatch bits here and there. They then, these shayateen and jinn, then communicate this snatched information to their 
awliya and their friends and their fellows amongst the ints, amongst the heens. And they pass it on to them, and the Prophet ﷺ says, they add a hundred lies to it. So you have one truth and a hundred lies. As a result of which, when these soothsayers and astrologers and the fortune tellers, we're not just talking about the those who just dabble in astrology or fortune telling as a hobby, we're talking about the more serious ones, the ones who are well-versed and experienced in it, and who actually dabble in sorcery, in sihr, and in soothsaying. They have a connection with the jinn and the shayateen. And what these jinn and shayateen do is that they pass on this snatched information to them, which is minimal, and they add a hundred lies to it. And when they share this information with the people... Out of 101 times, they do get it right once. And even then, not entirely, but partially. It's, it's, it tends to be very vague and partial. And an example is the Prophet ﷺ himself, which I mentioned at the beginning, that Rasulullah ﷺ went to Sayyidina Umar uh, to search for Ibn Sayyad. Now, Ibn Sayyad was a very strange figure. The Prophet ﷺ was creeping up to him slowly. He was actually stealthily creeping up to him. And his mother saw the Prophet ﷺ. And he was in a hammock, lying down, humming to himself, murmuring to himself. So she shouted out saying that Muhammad's here. So he, the Prophet, so the element of surprise had been lost. So the Prophet ﷺ then came to him and he said to him, what do you see? And then he said to him, that I am go- the Prophet ﷺ said, I'm going to think of a word. It's actually a narration, of, it's an authentic narration. I'm going to think of a word and I want you to tell me what it is. So the Prophet ﷺ actually thought of the word Dukhan. A word from the Qur'an, Dukhan means smoke or mist. So the Prophet ﷺ thought in his mind, Dukhan. And he was a child at the time, Ibn Sayyad. And he said to the Prophet ﷺ, Dukh, Dukh, half the word. So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, That woe be unto you, be despicable. For you will never go beyond your station. And then Sayyidina Umar said to him, Ya Rasulullah, as he was, would always do, grant me permission, da'ni Ya Rasulullah, grant me permission, O Messenger of Allah, followed by his well-known phrase, allow me to strike off his head. So the Prophet said, no, leave him. He said, if he isn't Dajjal, then there's no need to harm him. And if he is, then you won't be able to harm him. Now this Ibn Sayyid was a very strange figure. He actually was in Medina. And it's mentioned that once after the time of the Prophet ﷺ, when he grew into an adult, he was once traveling with someone, 
returning from Makkah. And he was com- people would be very wary of him. They'd say he'd be cautious of him. Ibn Sayyad. So, no one would travel with him. No one would spend time with him. No one would stay in his company. And he'd just been for pilgrimage to Makkah. So on the way back, one, per- one person says, I felt very sorry for him. So he cut a lonely figure. And I felt that he was very oppressed and unjustly treated by everybody else. So I decided to spend some time with him. So as I was with him, he was playing his violin, to say, and complaining of his ill-treatment at the hands of everybody else, and saying, people accuse me of being Dajjal, and people accuse me of being this, and how can that be? I am sincere. Didn't the Prophet ﷺ say he would never be able to enter Medina? He would never be able to enter Makkah? And look, I've just come from Makkah. I live in Medina. I have children. I have a family. And so on. So the narrator says, By Allah, I felt so sorry for him. And I was convinced that he's speaking the truth. And he is hard done by. And everyone has treated him unjustly. And then after this whole leg of the conversation, when he had won him over, and he was very sympathetic and pitiful towards him, he then suddenly started saying that, but, I'll tell you one thing though, if I was made the offer of being the Dajjal, I would accept. (laughs) So, this says, by Allah, he confused me, and I decided to abandon him. So he left him. But the same Ibn Sayyad, when he was a child, Prophet ﷺ approached him and he said, what do you see? And then he said to him, I'm thinking of a word, what is it? So the word was Dukhan. But he couldn't catch the whole word, but he caught half of it. So he actually said, imagine this, he read the mind of the Prophet ﷺ partially. So he said, Dukh, Dukh, half the word. And this is what happens. And this is why, if you look into it, sometimes people are able to figure out certain things. Now, I don't want to mislead you. I don't want to create any confusion. I'm one of the first people to say that be extremely careful about these things. The truth is we have to strike a balance. And the balance is that we accept that in the Qur'an and in the Hadith, there is, clear and ca- there is a clear and categorical mention of sihr, of sorcery, of the jinn, of the shayateen, of the jinn and the shayateen communicating with their compatriots from amongst the humans. Yuhi ba'duhum ila ba'dun. They communicate with one another. Even in Surah An-Nas, Allah teaches us to seek refuge in Him and seek His protection from Al-waswas al-khannas. Min al-jinnati wal-nas. From both amongst the men and the jinn. So there are these shayateen min al-jinni wal-ins from both men and amongst the jinn. So there are instances of sihr. There are instances of ayn, meaning the evil eye. There are instances of the shayateen and the jinn communicating with the ins, with, the, with people. And undoubtedly, there are 
there is a correlation between these things. And at times, they will hit the mark. There's a saying in Arabic, which means, there is many an arrow shot from a non-archer. Meaning sometimes, if someone's shooting a hundred arrows, and they are completely hopeless at archery, maybe it's their first attempt, out of a hundred arrows, they may still hit the target once. So, There is, often, there is an arrow that hits a target, even from a non-archer. So, this is the balance. We can't deny any of this. But at the same time, we have to realize, and this is hopefully a reassurance, that it's extremely rare. This is very rare. It's extremely rare. So there are some instances, but they are extremely rare. And we have to remember that. Even if you look at the world of dreams, you have three types of dreams. And I'll just be very quick. You have good dreams that are indeed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you have bad dreams that are from the shayateen. And then in between, you have dreams that are neither from, neither a good dream from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, nor a bad dream from the shayateen, but they are just a reflection of our own thoughts, feelings and emotions. This is the majority. Good dreams, genuinely good dreams, are a minority. And genuinely bad dreams, from Iblis, from the Shayateen, are a minority. Remember that. Same with these instances of Sihr, of Ayn, and of other things. These things can happen. Because they mentioned in the Quran, in the Hadith. But they are rare. On the other hand, most of our conditions and our fears have simple, daily, medical or psychological explanations. And we have to be very careful about this. Unfortunately, this has gone beyond a joke in our communities. And every single problem is diagnosed as a case of sihr, sorcery, or al-ain, the evil eye. And he always seems to be a family member. Back home. And it's terrible. It, it may be a laughing matter, but inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. I would advise and caution people and the listeners to be very wary of this and to consult the ulama. And even when I say ulama, consult those ulama who don't dabble in this themselves. It's a very serious thing. Have you ever wondered, subhanAllah, why is it that people who believe in Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam, who even though they may not be fully observant in other things, at least maintain their tahara and their ritual purity, who do not stay in the state of janabah and major ritual impurity. Have you ever wondered that, subhanAllah, why is it that almost every single one of them, if we were to look at the statistics in the community, how almost 
or I would say most of them, are afflicted by something to do with sihr and ayn, the eye and sorcery, and jinn and shayateen. And yet on the other hand, you have those who have no concept of ritual purity, no concept of tahara, and who are in a state of janabah all the time. And who do not abstain from the other sins and impurities that Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam have forbidden. How come? They are never afflicted. No jinn ever seems to affect them. They never seem to be the victim of any sahra. In most cases, and it's been my personal experience, I don't wish to reveal details, but some of them are hilarious. Where someone suffering from a genuine medical condition, uh, or a psychological condition, they go to the doctors, they go to the hospital, and either there's a misdiagnosis, or there's a failure at diagnosing the medical problem in its early stage. And in their desperation, people go or taken to some faith healer, some soothsayer, some kahin. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. And in an instant, this is the only, how can I put it, to use financial language, it's the only financial sector of the economy where the supplier instantly creates the demand out of thin air and then provides the supply. It's a win-win situation. Even beats the oldest profession. So, the person's got a simple medical condition, and the soothsayer, the kahin, or the sahir, or the faith healer says to them, I will, you have a problem. Yes, and the problem is, jinn, shayateen, sihr, sorcery. Someone close to you has done it. And this is the seed of doubt that they plant in your mind. And in fact, this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah An-Nas. قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ مَلِكِ النَّاسِ لَاهِ النَّاسِ مِنْ شَرِّ الْوَسْوَاسِ الْخَنَّاسِ أَلَّذِي يُوَسْوِسُ فِي صُدُورِ النَّاسِ مِنَ الْجِنَّةِ وَالنَّاسِ Which is that we seek refuge in Allah and His protection from who? From min sharril waswas al khannas, from the evil of the waswas, the whisperer. Al khannas, the retreating whisperer. Khannas means to retreat. The oft retreating. Fa'al sighatul mubalagha. It's a superlative. Or not superlative, exaggerated. So khannas means someone who excessively Retreats. So what's the meaning of excessively retreats? This, this means an off-retreating whisperer. So what, from who? Only from the jinn? No. Min al-jinnati wal-nas, from amongst the jinn and men. So what they do is that they come forward, they whisper something, and they quickly retreat. They come back, they whisper something, and they quickly retreat. So they move forward, plant a seed of doubt, and retreat. And that's all anyone needs to do, plant a seed of doubt. So, come forward, whisper something, and they retreat. And then the seed does its work. So they plant a seed of doubt. You are suffering from the effects of jinn or sorcery. 
and then we go away. That seed germinates, grows, bursts, flourishes. And it's not just a simple single stalk or a stem. The person's planted a seed of doubt and soon you have a whole forest of doubts. And they are, they are the ones who planted the seed of doubt and then they, they, they then claim that we will provide the solution, we will provide the cure. Of course, that's a great charge. And sometimes people say, oh, but they do it for free. They do it for free. Pounds, pennies, dollars and cents, money. Money is money, but ultimately it's just a currency. Let me tell you. Some people, they look beyond money, but they still look at currency. Money is currency in that it allows you to purchase, to wield influence, to wield power. If someone can capture your heart or capture your mind, Tell me, if you approach someone and they are able to win you over and they can capture your mind and capture your heart and they can enslave you mentally and emotionally, is that worth more to them? Or is even £10,000 worth more to them? Even 100000 what's worth more? If they can secure £100 of your money, that's £100 of currency. But if they can capture your heart and your imagination and enslave your mind, then you, your money, your possessions, your wealth, your heart, your mind and your very being now belongs to them. Money is just a currency. And currencies come in the form of wealth, power, influence, devotion, love and even religion. So be wary. So even if someone says he doesn't take any money, that means these are the sharper ones. This is another topic. I do not wish to devote any more time to this. But one of the reasons why I speak about this is subhanAllah, subhanAllah, the amount of damage that it does that I have seen. rather flippantly, they actually say, someone's cast a spell on you, and it's a family member. And the person goes away, and then starts having suspicions about every single family member. This is how they divide husband and wife, brother from brother, all for nothing. And I started by mentioning about failure to diagnose at an early stage or a misdiagnosis. If the person persists to seek medical advice, eventually they do discover the actual correct diagnosis and the real problem, maybe at a late stage. And all of the previous suspicions are in vain. So here, coming back to the hadith, Without doubt, there is an element of truth to this. And that's what happened with 
Heraclius. Now, he had vague information, just like Ibn Sayyad, duh, duh, half a word. And as the Prophet says in the Sahih Hadith of Bukhari, that they mix a hundred truths. Sorry, a hundred lies with one truth. And this wins them influence and believe, people believe them. So why is this hadith, why is this mentioned in the hadith of Rasulullah, in the hadith of Bukhari? Quite simply, what Bukhari is trying to show and what we are trying to illustrate is not that this is something to be relied on. Rather, that even those who dabbled in astrology at that time, all the signs were converging about the emergence of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Signs on the ground, signs in people's visions. And even those who dabbled in haram sciences such as astrology, they were discovering vague signs about the emergence of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Where did this come from? This, cra- this came from the shayateen who mixed one truth with a hundred lies. Anyway, to continue, فبين, inshallah, we will complete the hadith today. فَبَيْنَمَا هُمْ عَلَىٰ أَمْرِهِمْ So Ibn al-Nadhur continues, after mentioning point number one about the vision and the astrological signs of Heraclius. This is point number two. فَبَيْنَمَا هُمْ عَلَىٰ أَمْرِهِمْ So whilst they were still engaged in this affair, أُطِيَ هِرَقْلُ بِرَجْلٍ A man was brought to Heraclius, أَرْسَلَ بِهِ مَلِكُ غَسَّانٍ which the king of Ghassan had sent to him. يُخْبِرُ عَنْ خَبَرِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وسلم, Informing him about the news of the Messenger of Allah صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وسلم. فَلَمَّ اسْتَخْبَرَهُ هِرَقْلِ So when Heraclius inquired of him, قال, he said, اِذْهَبُوا Go, فَانْظُرُوا And see, أَمُخْتَتِنٌ هُوَ أَمْ لَا Is he circumcised or not? فَنَظَرُوا إِلَيْهِ فَحَدَّثُوهُ أَنَّهُ مُخْتَتٍ So they searched him. And, or they inspected him, and they then informed Heraclius that he was circumcised. And he questioned this messenger about the Arabs. So he said, They also circumcise. So Heraclius said, This is the empire of this nation that has risen. This was point number two. Point number one was the vision connected to the astrological study of Heraclius. He had a vague idea that a king of the circumcised people has risen. Whilst they were discuss- he was discussing this with his courtiers, in that period, maybe not immediately, but in that time, during that time, his Ghassanid ally, the king of the Ghassanid Arabs, who was an Arab himself, who had learnt about the Prophet ﷺ, he sent a messenger to Heraclius. Now remember, these were Arabs in the area known of Syria and Jordan today. This is where the Ghassanids were. So when this messenger came, he informed Heraclius from his king, the Ghassanid king, about the Prophet ﷺ. So Heraclius said to his courtiers, inspect him and see if he is circumcised. And they inspected him and he was circumcised, just like the rest of the Arabs. So... He then questioned him about the Arabs in general. And then learning more about the Prophet ﷺ and the Arabs in general, he said, this is the empire of the Arabs that has risen. 
But again, he didn't know too much about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That was point number two. Point number three: he re- received a letter from Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and then point number four. Abu Sufyan, he summoned Abu Sufyan. Now point number five, something else happened after Abu Sufyan. And this is the final part of the hadith. I'm going through all of this in detail because if you read the hadith, well I can't say you, but uh, some people may not understand the chronology. Now is the final part. And this part is, ta- it's all mentioned together, but this part is point number five taking place even after Abu Sufyan. So what is that point? Then Heraclius wrote a letter to his companion and friend in Rome, actual Rome in Italy, which was the capital of the western half of the Roman Empire. وَكَانَ نَظِيرَهُ فِي الْعِلْمِ And he was his equal in knowledge. وَسَارَ هِرَقْلُ إِلَى حِمْسَ And Heraclius marched to Hims. Hims was traditionally known as Emesa, the city of Hims, where in Syria. فَلَمْ يَرِمْ حِمْسَ So he remained in Hims, in Emesa. حَتَّى أَتَاهُ كِتَابٌ مِّنْ صَاحِبِهِ until a letter arrived from his friend in Rome. It's said that his name was Dhaghatir. يوافق رأي هرقل على خروج النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم وأنه نبي. Agreeing with Heraclius' opinion about the emergence of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم and that he is a prophet. So have we understood so far? Right at the beginning, point number one, which is mentioned towards the end of the hadith. Heraclius saw a dream related to his... Or it was just a vision and his own surmising and conclusion based on his astrological study. Two, he received a messenger sent from the Ghassanid king. First vague information, then a bit more information about the Arabs. Third, he received a letter from the Prophet ﷺ, sent with Dihitul Kalbi. Four, he summoned Abu Sufyan. And that's the first, that's the first part of the hadith. And then this is finally, after having discussed with Abu Sufyan, he then left Jerusalem. Here it seems as though he left Jerusalem after he saw the dream and, oh sorry, after his surmising and his astrological study and his Receiving the messenger, no. This was later, after his interrogation of Abu Sufyan. He then left Jerusalem. In fact, never to come back. Never to come back. He then left Jerusalem. And then he marched to Hims. Why did he go to Hims? Remember, he had come to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. Hims, known as Emesa, traditionally was a city that was even larger and more important politically and militarily and politically and uh, militarily than even Damascus. So it was actually his capital. His capital wasn't Damascus. His capital was in Syria, Hims, known as Emesa. So that's where he went after leaving Jerusalem. 
there, based on his whole experience, even after his conversation with Abu Sufyan, within he was convinced, he was convinced that the Prophet is Messenger of Allah. He still couldn't come to believe. So what he then did is that he had a fellow, a friend and a companion, in the city of Rome in Western, of the Western Empire in Italy. He wrote to him explaining everything about all his experiences and his own conclusions. So this was a knowledgeable person, the Ghatir, in Rome. The Ghatir wrote back to him and agreed with him and with his analysis that everything that you have spoken of leads you to conclude, and I agree with your conclusion, that this man, Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, that Abu Sufyan spoke to you of, that you have learnt about, he is the king of the Arabs, the circumcised people, and he is not just, he is not just their leader, but he is the prophet of Allah, and the signs are all clear that this is a time for the emergence of the final messenger, and it is he. The Ghatir, it's not mentioned here, but the Ghatir then actually came out in Rome and he began preaching to the people to embrace the message of the Prophet ﷺ. He never had many details, but he was telling people that a messenger, a messenger has emerged. A messenger has emerged. So this actually tells us that the news of the Prophet ﷺ reached Rome and Western Europe during his time, not just after. So he began preaching. Unfortunately, his own people set upon him and they killed him. So the Ghatir embraced Islam, but unfortunately was killed. And he was a companion that is being referred to here in Rome, who wrote to Heraclius. Then what happened, when he received the letter from his companion in Hims, he was waiting there, and he remained in Hims. When he received the letter, Heraclius was pushed further to actually embrace. Remember, he was struggling in his own soul, in his heart. So what did he do? فَأَذِنَ هِرَقْلُ لِعُذَمَاءِ الرُّومِ فِي دَسْكَرَةٍ لَهُ بِحِمْسِ So Heraclius then granted an audience to the great dignitaries of Rome, of Byzantine Rome, in a huge hall of his in Hims. So again, like in Jerusalem, but here an even larger royal hall in the capital, he granted an audience to all the great and grand and the powerful of the Byzantine Roman Empire. Why? And this is what he did. He then instructed that the doors of this great hall should be locked, shut. Then he appeared to them from above. So it was some sort of grand hall where he didn't appear to them in their midst, but rather he summoned them and there was a great hall once they had all assembled, even though he was their emperor, and the mightiest emperor at the time, he ordered that all the doors should be shut and locked. Then, he appeared to them from above, in protection. Then he appeared. He then said, Ya ma'ashar al-Rum, O assembly of Romans, 
Hallakum fil falahi wal rushd. Subhanallah. Listen to his words. Hallakum fil falahi wal rushd. Think of this. Imagine the scene. This is the royal hall in the capital, political and military capital of Emesa. This is Heraclius, the Byzantine Roman emperor, who is the mightiest and recognized as such, the mightiest emperor of the greatest power at the time. And here he has summoned the greatest of his people, the bishops, the clergymen, the patriarchs, the dignitaries, the military generals, and they are all assembled in this hall. He has the doors locked, and he appears to them from above. And he is actually addressing them in the following manner. He says, But do you have any interest and any zeal in true success and in guidance? And that your kingdom should last? If so, in that you should pledge allegiance to this Prophet. So they, the whole assembled crowd, and we're not talking about the mob or the populace, we're talking about the dignitaries and the generals and the elites of the whole Byzantine Roman Empire. So they bolted like the bolting of wild asses to the doors. Like wild donkeys, braying and shouting and screaming, they bolted and fled towards the doors. So they found them to be locked. Now why did they bolt to the doors? A cursory reading would suggest that they hated the message so much they just wanted to run out. That wasn't the case. They could have just said, we're not interested. Like there was din and clamor in Jerusalem after the reading of the letter in front of Abu Sufyan when they were driven out. He was there on his throne with his crown. What did the dignitaries do then? And in fact, there it was a bit more dangerous because they were the religious leaders, the bishops in Jerusalem. There was great din and clamor, there was shouting, but nothing happened. Because he didn't actually invite them to Islam. All he did was had the letter read out. He did it in a very intelligent manner. He was trying to win them over without actually saying anything. Here, much later, since he was now convinced that he is a prophet of Allah, and remember what I said earlier initially, when the Prophet ﷺ sent in the letter, had he understood then that following the Prophet ﷺ would have meant the securing of his kingdom too? He realized this himself later. Now he was convinced that he is a prophet of Allah. His companion had wrote to him. Everything pointed to it, and he was inclined to believe. He really wanted to believe. He did. He wanted to believe. But here, what does he do? He doesn't just read out letters or have letters read out. He actually invites them personally to Islam. But because this was a dangerous thing to do, what did he do? 
he gathered all of them in the hall and he made sure that he wasn't in their midst, that he was above on a balcony. And he had the doors locked. What did he fear? This wasn't a brain mob. These were the elite. This was the elite. These were his generals and his dignitaries and courtiers. The truth is, he feared for his life, just like the Ghatir had lost his life in Rome. When he preached. So now, he was actually going to invite them to Islam. So he did it in a manner that would ensure his privacy and his security. So he appeared from the top, made sure the doors were bolted. When they bolted like wild asses to the doors, it's because some of them wanted to go for him. So when they found the doors to be bolted, they turned around and they were still angry. They were seething with anger. They wanted to kill him. Heraclius. So what did he say? So when Heraclius saw there aversion, and he despaired of their belief, of belief, whose belief? He despaired of their belief and his own belief. That's why the word, he despaired of belief. Their belief and his own belief. قال, he said, Return them to me. وقال, and then he said, again from above, إِنِّي قُلْتُ مَقَالَتِي آنِفَا I said, I made my statement just now. Why? أَخْتَبِرُ بِهَا شِدَّتَكُمْ عَلَى دِينِكُمْ Merely in order to, te- I was test, I only said what I said. So that I could test your firmness and steadfastness on your religion. Now that I've seen how steadfast you are, so I've seen it. That was merely a test. I wasn't actually inviting you to Islam. I wasn't inviting you to pledge allegiance to this Prophet. I was merely testing your faith. So I've seen your passion for your faith. Meaning in his mind he thought that you were going to kill me. So they prostrated to him and they were content and happy with him. Ibn al-Nadhur says, this was the final affair of Heraclius. Meaning of final affair, there remains some confusion. And even now some people are inclined to believe, not scholarly, I'm just saying, some, some people would like to believe that Heraclius was a Muslim. But the truth is that indeed he was inclined. He was convinced in heart. And he wanted to. And all of these things led to that. But ultimately when it came to the crunch, he chose the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of the hereafter. And this was the final affair of Heraclius that he died in this manner. And this wasn't towards the end of his life. This was some time after he left Jerusalem and after his conversation with Heraclius. Uh, sorry, with Abu Sufyan. Then, later what happened after the conquest of Mecca, Abu Sufyan embraced, the others embraced, and in Tabuk the Prophet ﷺ marched north. It's mentioned that ultimately Heraclius, even, this was even before the Battle of Muta, in which Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, Abdullah ibn Rawaha, and Zayd ibn Haritha, radiyallahu anhum, these three commanders fell. 
in the Battle of Muta. The Battle of Muta took place in the eighth year of Hijrah. And who was the opponent? It was the Byzantine Romans and their Ghassanid allies under the leadership of Heraclius. But Heraclius never came out to the battlefield. It was a small affair. It wasn't a, a, there weren't great armies involved. But it, it was a battle. But Heraclius didn't come out onto the battlefield. When the Prophet ﷺ, a year later in the, at the time of Tabuk, when he arrived in uh, Tabuk, he actually sent another letter to Heraclius. And Heraclius claimed to be a Muslim. And in a narration of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal in his Musnad, Rasulullah ﷺ actually said, Nay, he is lying. He remains on his Christian faith. He has not embraced and then, after the time of the Prophet ﷺ, Heraclius was the... He remained the emperor for another nine years after the passing away of the Prophet ﷺ. Eventually, he... He, 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 he did not embrace, and this was the final affair of Heraclius. In any case, this brings us to the end of the hadith. There is a lot more to say, but I'll suffice with this. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand the words of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Despite being so great and intelligent, Heraclius chose the kingdom of the world over the kingdom of the hereafter. And that was tragic. But there is one thing. There are some twists. One, Heraclius did not mistreat the messenger of Rasulullah wasallam, And he, in a way, respected the letter of Rasulullah And this was in stark contrast to the Sasanid Persian emperor who in his arrogance took the letter from the messenger and ripped it up. The letter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam learnt of this, he cursed him and prayed against him saying, May Allah rip his kingdom as he ripped my letter. And what the effect of that was, that when the Muslims, fought against both the Sasanid Persians and the Byzantine Romans. The Sasanid Persian Empire, lasting for centuries and generations, it was completely destroyed, completely. There was no Sasanid Persian Empire left. None whatsoever. Allah fulfill the prayer of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam that Allah rip up his kingdom as he ripped up my letter. But Heraclius at least showed some respect and he did not mistreat the letter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam although his armies were destroyed, utterly destroyed, not just defeated, the, the whole Byzantine Roman army was destroyed in one battle. They were unable to fight another battle. And that was in the single battle of Yermuk. Heraclius left, bidding farewell to Sham, to Syria. 
and then he retreated to Constantinople. So the Byzantine Roman Empire continued, albeit in a much weakened and reduced state, for another 800 years approximately, until in the 15th century when Sultan Muhammad Fatih conquered Constantinople. And then the Byzantine Roman Empire came to an end. But that was in contrast to the Sasani Persian Empire, which was completely destroyed. And <clears throat> subhanAllah, do remember that these were the two superpowers of the time. And within a few years, Allahu Akbar, within a few years, a small number of Arab Bedouin from the deserts of Arabia came swarming out of that land. And within a few years, these Arab Bedouin, whose only experience of warfare was that were their internal tribal squabbles, they managed to defeat entire Roman legions. And destroy the whole of the Sasanid Persian Empire. And these were the two superpowers of the time. That was because they had the blessing of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum with them. And the word of Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam, as I said, reached Rome during his own lifetime. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulihi nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on double zero double four one two one double seven one three triple seven or by email via sales at akstore.com produced under license by Alcotha Productions all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author any unauthorized distribution broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright